Love, and especially marriage, is such a thrilling and dangerous ride that we must follow the proper precautions before we get on. Last week, Peter gave us an overview of the rarely preached book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. And in that overview, he provided a um, a fantastic metaphor for love. He called it something like the world's tallest, fastest roller coaster. I like that so much, I decided to follow that metaphor as we take a look at the first chapter of this song, because it is quite a roller coaster. And it basically asks this question of the reader. Should I get on the roller coaster now? And uh, in this chapter, we're going to see a young couple awkwardly and playfully fantasizing and beginning to pursue one another. This will paint a very vivid picture, followed by a clear warning. The warning, the need for wisdom and even restraint when moving toward the season of dating and marriage. This sermon, I hope, will benefit those who are looking at this season now, those who are looking ahead to it or struggling with it, as well as those who want to better care for such people. In short, we are going to learn a lot about love. A quick heads up if you haven't been here the past few weeks, and especially if you have kids, this book and this chapter talks frank, frankly about physical attraction and sex. The preachers here have pledged not to avoid what the Bible makes clear, but to present it to equip and edify God's people without being unnecessarily provocative. And I'm happy to chat afterwards if you'd like to talk. So that being said, in your outline, we're going to learn first today that the velocity of attraction, the speed, is sudden and it is very intense. And secondly, that it's a track with, with one clear trajectory. And um, so, before setting foot on the ride, your third point, we must follow the guidelines or risk injury. Um, before I read the text, let me remind you, or let me tell you perhaps for the first time, that much of what you read here is fantasy. It's a bit of a, of a wild scenario, most of which takes place internally between two people. So please, do not project your life or your current season onto this automatically. Don't just copy and paste. And please, do not write these verses down as pickup lines. (laughs) Instead, what I'd like to ask you to do is enjoy the wisdom of the author in accurately describing just how powerful attraction and love are. And then we're going to see what we can learn. So let me start with chapter 1, and I'll read through with ver- uh, from verse 1 through verse 14. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And she says this, let, me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. 
draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And the others say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She says this, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark. Because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me you whom my soul loves. Where you pasture your flock. Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why shall I be like one who veils herself. Beside the flocks of your companions. And he says. If you do not know. O most beautiful among women. Follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And the others say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And she closes with this. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me. A sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Egypt. Just like you fell in love, right guys? (laughs) Okay, the first thing we learn here is that the velocity of attraction is very sudden and very intense. Just look at verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay, I'm sorry, what's your name again? (laughs) What's his name? (laughs) They mean in a Bible study or something? I don't know. We don't know. And we're going right through a mouthful of kisses. Well, and this phrasing implies, as Peter observed last week, this is not a peck on the cheek that she's after. So, um... When I, when I compare to trash to a roller coaster, let me, let me clarify, given this verse. You might have thought of one of those older roller coasters that kind of pulls you up the hill with lots of clicking as you wonder what on earth you've done. Um, no, I want you to imagine instead one of those newer coasters that goes from zero to 80 in like three seconds. That's how this starts. And that's how a traction often starts. In fact, these, these first few verses, we see that this woman wants every bit of this man as her senses are aroused. I mean, still in verse 2, the taste of wine is compared, even exceeded, by this man that she wants. In verse 3, the smell of this man is almost magnetic, but it's, it's way more. I want you to pay attention to verse 3. It's way more than just physical. Still in verse 3, his name is like precious oil. That's another way of saying this man is a man of good character and reputation. In fact, so much so that right after that we read that all the virgins are after him. By the way, please think of the word virgin, not so much in terms of sexual state. Think about it more in terms of marrying age. In other words, this guy has it all. He's not married. Man, all the ladies in town, they're not married. And they really want this guy. But There's this lady. She seems to want him most of all. Now, I think it's fair to say 
when it comes to the intensity of attraction, in general, most of us have felt this way at least one time. At least. We may have ended up marrying this person, or we may never have even introduced ourselves. That's how attraction can work. A man sees a woman, or a woman sees a man, gets to know him a little bit, and wants them. Am I making a judgment statement? No, I am not. (laughs) Just an observation. It is sudden. It is intense. It's rooted in character. It's rooted in physical attraction as well. So much so that this woman begins to imagine a scenario, I think, in verse 4. They run together. He's like a king to her. Her friends follow in the latter half of the verse, approving them, urging things forward. If you've ever been attracted to somebody and all your friends are saying, go for it, it's just way easier to go for it, isn't it? But in verse 5, desire, such as it is in real life, is not without complication. She calls herself dark but lovely. Now, please do not make a racial interpretation there. We will get a lot of clarity in a few verses, but for now, see that she also compares herself to the tents of Keter and the curtains of Solomon. That actually tells us a little bit about what the phrasing means. Um, you guys all know the tents of Keter, right? Of course not. Um, remember that there's um, some conflict regarding her self-perception with the word dark but lovely. The metaphors actually explain that. One commentator described the tents of Keter as dark and very coarse, very functional, well-made, but kind of rural, kind of rustic. In contrast, the curtains of Solomon were light, urban, fashionable. So let us consider that contrast as illustrating the contrast or the conflict inside her. She thinks she's beautiful, says I'm lovely, yet there's something about her physically and her skin tone that just might not be in line with what this young man might typically want. There's more clarity of this right in the text, and it's the clarity for that word dark. Look at verse 6. She's been made to work the vineyards. The vineyards themselves are very hard work. In fact, it implies that she was almost abusively forced to work very hard work. This is kind of almost like Cinderella. (laughs) And as a result, she's dark from being outside and working hard. She's been working long hours and she has not been able to spend much time beautifying herself. That's what I think is meant by her own vineyard. Although it's possible her own place of living is in disrepair because she's being forced to work so hard. And beyond all that, historically speaking, at this time, and you might have seen this in some of the uh, period movies of that time, beauty was desired more by the soft, fair complexion of a woman who didn't have to bother being outside. She was so rich, she was so wealthy, she could just stay inside. No tan lines, <laughs> awkwardly. But yet this woman, in contrast, is a hard worker who then might be seen as socially or economically beneath this young man. But, here's the cool part, she's not a drama queen about it. 
She sees herself as beautiful and she makes a bid in verse 7. Where do you pasture your flock? In other words, where do you work and how can I get access to you? Man, this is like a roller coaster of desire and fantasy and self-consciousness and it doesn't even seem likely they've talked yet. That takes me back, doesn't it? (laughs) Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you're there now. There's so much just cooking under the surface, carried around, words left unsaid. And it's intense enough, but here in the story, the coaster then really picks up. This guy answers the access question and offers clarity on how he sees her in just one verse. Verse 8, I'll read that again. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women... Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. In other words, he's saying, you want access? Here's my work address. Also, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Now, did the intensity just go up or down there? Maybe a little up. But then, immediately after in verse 9, he seems to compare her to a horse. Don't be fooled. Let me explain this man's game. (laughs) He compares her in verse 9 to a war horse of a pharaoh. In other words, he judges her physical strength, which I think would likely come from working those vineyards, not as something to be hesitant about, but as something that excites him. Now, if you've ever had a poor self-perception of your own body and then the person you likes you like flips it as a compliment you know that intensity goes up you might start boasting in that and it builds with jewelry in verse 10 even given by others in verse 11 we're just moving forward then in verses 12 through 14 This desire seems to build almost to a fever pitch. They're kind of magically transported in this play of sorts, physically closer now in verse 12. Now they're in separate rooms and her perfume kind of just floats to where he is. Her king smells it and can't help but think of her. They're getting closer. And in verse 13, he himself is compared to a fragrance that lies like a satchel on her breast. And so it's clear that what is being imagined and thought about is very physical. Then it builds in verse 14 as the scene then fantastically shifts from chambers to faraway romantic royal gardens. The language here is floral, it's perfect. It looks almost like the Garden of Eden. These two have been swept away into paradise. So where does that intensity lead? Let's shift our focus from velocity to trajectory. I'm going to read chapter 115 through 27. He continues, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Your eyes are doves. 
She says, Behold, you're beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He answers, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She says this, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Do you see the trajectory? <laughs> That's point two, and it is singular. This is a one-track roller coaster with a clear destination. Look at these two verses in 15, 15 and 16. They're paying compliments again, but they're not just thinking about one another anymore from far away. They're not imagining it, and they're not at his work anymore, and they're not in separate chambers, and they're not in the gardens In verses 15 and 17, they live together in a very nice house. They've moved in. This is a house made of the finest materials. No used Ikea furniture here. Pine and cedar. Things move forward in chapters 2, 1 through 2, through any hint of remaining hesitation. They're living together in chapter 2, verse 1. She calls herself a rose of Sharon or lily of the valley. And that seems kind of like a compliment, I guess. But I actually don't think so. Uh, Those plants were actually fairly common by historical standards. In other words, I think she wonders if she is special to him at all I think it's clear that his response indicates that he's trying to reassure and he does a good job in verse 2 he calls her lily among thorns in other words to him every other woman is like a weed it's like to this guy Only one woman exists. Virgins all fade into the background. Only her. This is looking more and more like the Garden of Eden every minute. And the plot pushes forward. The two have a feast and they can hardly finish the meal. She's sick with love and can barely eat. To paraphrase one commentator, these two are not here for a Bible study. What is about to happen seems inevitable. That's how singular trajectory works. Finally, in verse 6, their embrace does not imply a hug. (laughs) This language implies sex. They become one flesh. They're united in mind and body. All the sudden and intense velocity of attraction and trajectory leads to this. And the author wisely lowers the curtains and the stage lights go dark. 
That was quite a story. What do we learn? We learn the importance of guidelines. That's point three. It's a caution given with our final verse, verse 7. And this, at least the back end of it, is the one verse that most of us know from this whole book. I adjure you, or earnestly urge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's the third thing we learn about the roller coaster. Follow the guidelines or risk injury. There didn't seem to be a lot of injury here in this story. Let me explain. This warning begins with animal imagery of all things in verse 7. Cute little deer. Why? Well, deer show up elsewhere in the book. I think it's simply to present this innocent, beautiful creature... Perhaps like the versions described in the book, one associated with love elsewhere in the book, and say in a manner of speaking by all that is good and pure, don't run headlong into this. One commentator summed it up so nicely, I'll just quote him. Love is an extremely powerful emotion. It can cause a kind of temporary insanity in which we do things that we would not otherwise do in the grip of the intense feelings that it evokes. The song affirms the appropriateness and beauty of those feelings in their proper place. There's nothing wrong with the passionate desire for sexual union, for the eager longing to be embraced by one's beloved in the house of wine. However, the proper place and time for such union is only within marriage. One man, one woman. Those who, who as yet are unmarried, such as the daughters of Jerusalem, the audience are warned about the danger of stirring up such feelings before their time. In our contemporary context, we live in a culture that spends much of its waking time seeking to stir up desires for love and sex, a culture in which sex outside marriage is increasingly regarded as Normal. I might even say elevated. This woman in the song urges all of us to beware of those temptations, not because sex is dirty or insipid, but precisely because it is so beautiful and potent. It is a glorious gift given to us by God, intended to bond two people inseparably together for life by its unique and overwhelming power. Some good commentary. In other words, love is good. Sex is good. These things are in fact so good, and the velocity in which you approach them can be so powerful, and the trajectory of it can be so singular, it must not be possessed prematurely. It must not. Let me just touch on two of many possible applications here. One about the guidelines and then one about the hope for those who have been injured or those who have injured. Application number one. 
acknowledge the beauty of love in its time and acknowledge the danger of anything less. First, beauty. For those of you who are young, kids, (laughs) marriage is a ways off, but those feelings may actually be starting to develop now. Girls and boys are becoming slightly less gross. This is good. That's great. Those feelings are meant to show you that attraction is a natural and good gift from God. Others of you are single but older, of marrying age. You want marriage. Feelings might actually be yelling a little bit now. But you also, I don't know, and or maybe a doctorate. Maybe a missionary in the jungle. I don't know, all the above. All these competing things and marriage is there. Foreground of the background of your mind. It's still good. It's still good. Marriage is, marriage is beautiful in its time, even if we don't know which time. It's good. In fact, it's so good, you must be very careful in pursuing it. Let me just show you, I think the the commentator did a great job of teasing out the conflict there. But let me just kind of illustrate how that danger can creep in. Okay? Single friends, especially those near or at marrying age, imagine this, and for some of you it really may not be much of a stretch. One moment you're sitting there, wherever there is, and then that person walks in. That person. And you go from zero to 80. The, uh, the velocity is sudden. Is that wrong in and of itself? No. No. But what does it look like to handle that carefully? Well, first... Don't simply rush in. I talked to some of the uh, college students recently. They updated me on on, uh, dating culture, a little out of the game. Um, And they said the culture on campus they see is students hooking up, not in person, but almost entirely on social media. Almost entirely. Especially with COVID. It's just all virtual. And... Here's the craziest part. Relationships often begin on apps with propositions for sex. That's how it starts. Now, our lady here in, um, in the song, she knows her man has a good name, right? Better than oil? Some dive in without even knowing a name at all. Injury waits for the impatient, doesn't it? I recall being in a men's group years ago, and the conversation, as it does, turned to women. I was single at the time, and as each other single man shared his past, nearly every one of them explained that they just wandered in without caution. And for every man who shared a sordid sexual past, every one of them had deep regrets. Every one. 
Here's what I'm saying. Is it painful and awkward to wait on the Lord? Yeah. (laughs) But guess what's a thousand times more painful? Not waiting. So please, don't even toe the line. Don't toe the line. If you think it's okay to casually date just to see what happens, read this chapter again. That's what happens. That's where it goes. That's the trajectory. And once you get going in a relationship, the velocity spikes and the trajectory is always singular. Have you ever tried to go backwards on a roller coaster once it gets going? Good luck. But I will say this. Parents, as I'm saying all this, you might have been reminded of your own story. Please be patient and gracious with your children. Not long ago, this was probably you. (laughs) They're going through a really, really hard season. Uh, let, let, Let me suggest something wild here, though. There's danger there in the physical. But I think there's an even bigger danger, especially for a lot of Christians, we don't talk about. It's up here. It's comfortably dwelling in the fantasy world. It's taking Song of Solomon, chapter 1, just making that your thought life, all day, every day, year after year. I know this one all too well. When I was in my teens and when I was in my 20s, I would just dwell, daydream about women. This one, then that one, then that one on TV, then that real person there. And um, here's the thing. I grew up in church, so I was, I was mortified to make any attempt to sin sexually that was so saturated in the advice that I got. It's all about the physical. So I would never even make a move. But I never learned how to think about it. I never learned what to do with all the feelings that came in. The intoxication set in. And it stayed there for a very long time. In fact, I dare say that it would have been easier for me to be an alcoholic instead. Because it would have been easier to quit. Because when you're an alcoholic, at least people can see the beer in your hand. But when the addiction is up here, you can suffer alone. Can you relate to that? You're so mortified to sin sexually that you just bottle it all up. And you wonder why you feel so crazy. Friend, if you live in this fantasy realm... It will become nearly impossible 
to tell where reality stops and fantasy begins. And no one may even know that you need help. If that is you, friend, you need help. This is not a place to live. Let's be honest. Whether it's physical or whether it's mental, the injuries are great, sadly, when it comes to the good gift of love. Many have been injured. Many have done the injuring. The injuring has been to self and to others. Many of us have ridden the roller coaster on our terms and people have shouted for us to get off and we have ignored them. We towed the line mentally or we have towed the line physically. Some of us have train wrecked marriages because of this. Some of us have been train wrecked because of this. We damage our bodies, we damage our minds, our bodies are damaged, our bodies are mined, and the bodies and minds of others are damaged. Is there hope for the injured? And is there hope for the one who has injured? This is God's church. You bet there's hope. It's your second application. Bring God into the struggle. He knows a thing or two about marriage. In fact, God created man and woman not simply united to each other, but united to him. In fact, marriage was kind of a picture of God's greater union with his people. But his people did not remain faithful to him. Passages like Ezekiel 16, graphic as it is, describes the opposite of the beautiful fantasy we see here in Song of Solomon. And according to it, God's people are the unfaithful spouse. In other words, everyone's caused harm riding the roller coaster. And everybody's been harmed. Yet, God remained faithful to his faithless people. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reestablish union between people and God, a great cost to himself by death on a cross. And you know, when you think about that, that's actually a fulfillment of the wisdom we see in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. His is a love that need not be awakened. It's timeless. It's perfect. He is the perfect spouse. And according to Revelation 19, his is the marriage that doesn't end without spot, blemish. Friend, as you wait, if you are awaiting marriage, if Jesus does not seem enough May I promise you that even if you were to have a love life such as we see in this song, it would be nothing compared to the love that Jesus has for you. The love that will never betray. And if you are married, you can actually, number one, apply this to your marriage. 
Look, I get it. I mean, if you look at this story, your marriage might have looked at that at one time and then you had kids or maybe you had some trouble in your marriage and it doesn't really look the way that you see in the, the song. It's meant to. It's a struggle. You can learn from that. But you can also take the wisdom and love you find in Jesus and the lessons you've learned in your own marriage and you can offer great counsel to the single people here in addition to caring for your own kids. Single friends, maybe your parents never taught you right about this. Maybe they're out of your life now and you feel alone. You have family here. You have a faithful spouse in Jesus Christ. There's so many spouses and moms and dads here who would love to help you think through and even redeem your thought life and find rest in the forgiveness of Jesus, whether the patterns in your life are mental or physical. You're in a hard battle. Points to marriage, which points to Christ. And so it is a battle you can be sure if you are in him, will be won. You're not alone. We love you. Jesus loves you even more. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you so much for the good gift of marriage. Thank you even when it appears very broken, whether it's in culture or in our own experience, that it is good because it is from you. Lord, you created it, you redeem it, and it ultimately is fulfilled in the cross. And it points to the marriage that never ends. Lord, may we read this and may we find refreshing in hope that marriages are supposed to be a picture of unity. And that even though that is broken or it's something that seems a million miles away, it is possible because you died in rose. Amen.